and how to respond to that particular accusation. I don't want to start at the beginning here. I want to start in the middle. And I think this is where we are with many things, at the middle point of this passage. It's verse 5, where the apostles came to Jesus and they asked him, increase our faith. Have you ever felt in that capacity? Don't seem to have enough. I need to increase it. I need to do better than I'm doing. Uh, we feel guilty that we don't even do enough. Increase our faith, we say. And we want Jesus to do that for us. Faith is something that is special, that is unique, that is significant. But I want you to consider it on this particular basis. Faith, sometimes when we talk about it, is a personal faith we have. These are the things I believe. When I was growing up, I don't hear it as much these days, but people would say, back in whatever date they would want to put, I came to the faith. Faith in that particular context is a corporation, a collection of beliefs, a structure of beliefs that we come to. Sometimes we talk about the faith where the faith is actually a church or a denomination that we come to, that we become a part of the church's group membership. But I want to suggest something beyond that. I had somebody ask me years ago, what is faith? And the answer is simple. You go to Hebrews, faith is the substance of things hoped for the, you know, the text. And we go away from that probably a little more confused than we were when we first asked the question. I want to suggest something as a basic rule of understanding in Scripture. Faith comes from the word pistuo, pistos. It's translated any one of three ways. It could be faith. It could be trust. I mean, faith, belief, and trust. Faith as what is presented to us in Scripture, though, is not in a corporate structure of beliefs that we may have. Faith is never at that level. Faith is never a denomination. Faith is never an organized understanding of things. Faith in Scripture is always focused in a person. I come over here and I lean on this and I have faith that it will hold me up. Sometimes they don't. But faith is not a trusting in a collection of beliefs or a thing. It is faith and trust in a person. And in Scripture, faith is trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you follow that? It isn't belief. It isn't a structure. When I say talk about faith, I am talking about increasing my trust in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? This is bottom line theology. 
This is something you take with you every single day. In fact, I prefer sometimes the word trust over the word faith. That pistuos is calling me to trust in Jesus Christ. What a place. What a call. What an encouragement. And so the disciples said, increase our faith. Now there's a little bit of a problem possibly here too. Whose faith do they want increased? Their own. Why? If they had more faith, wouldn't they become more respected in the community they were trying to serve? A little worried about this with the disciples because over and over again you find them in Scripture in a position of who is the greatest in our midst. It's a question, a concern that they have, they continually have. Faith is a focus in trust in Jesus Christ, not an improvement in myself. To increase faith says, allow me to come to the point, Jesus, that I trust you more. That's where it is. Faith is trust. It doesn't focus in me, in my abilities, in doing certain razzle-dazzle types of miracles. Well, Jesus approaches it on that basis and says, say, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this tree, go be planted in the ocean. Now, when you come right down to it, that's something I don't need to do. At least I don't think I need to do. I don't need to rearrange a yard and remove a tree and say, you know, go plant yourself out beyond Catalina Island. Why would we do that? But yet this is the illustration that Jesus uses, and he talks about faith being as small as a mustard seed. I heard of a guy once who was traveling in the Holy Land, came to a little curio shop and went in and had the plaque, uh, you know, if you had faith as a mustard seed, as Matthew puts it, you can move mountains. As Luke puts it, you can move a tree. And here in a little cellophane was a seed. And that particular seed represented the size of the faith you must have. Well, he took it home with him, had it around for a while, and then he decided to plant it. And it grew up. In fact, he must have had so much faith, he ended up with tomatoes. Faith. Faith of a mustard seed. Have you seen a mustard seed? I happen to have a couple with me. I'm going to pass the mustard. Do you see them in there? Oh, come on. We're going to have to get these around. We'll just pass them on back. 
They are actually about the size of poppy seeds that you see in a bagel. We'll start over here and take a look at it. Is that small? Jesus said, you need this size of faith. Isn't it small? Did you think it would be that small? Okay. A horticulturalist. Faith the size of a mustard seed. If you had that much faith, you could uproot the sycamore tree, similar to a tree we'll see a few weeks from now with Zacchaeus climbing the tree. You could have that planted in the ocean. It would obey you. Now, my question is here, why did Jesus, why did the disciples ask Jesus for more faith? I want you to look at your text. Look at the first saying, starting verse 1 and 2. It says there's an occasion for stumbling. The word behind it, you can almost transliterate into scandal. There's occasions for scandal that are bound to come. I want you to note this. I think this is significant. It is saying that there are bound to be scandals in the church. Do you catch that? It's inevitable. It will happen. Scandals, stumbling, will take place in the church. They're bound to happen. They're bound to come. Jesus said this. This is a part of the reality. These things will happen. And then he gives a woe. Woes were kind of a unique thing. Uh, back in the Old Testament times with the children of Israel, they'd gather one group of people on one hill. There would be a valley in between another group on another hill, and they would shout blessings from one side and woes from the other side. Go back a little chap, few chapters before this and see where Jesus gives the Beatitudes in Luke. And you have the blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Woe unto the rich on the other side. And you have these opposite things. Woe, he is saying here, to anyone of you who would cause stumbling. Strong statement. Then he adds, be better if you took a millstone. These were not small. These were for grinding wheat, separating the value of the wheat and getting it to a place that they could use it as a flour. Be better if a millstone was put around your neck and you were dropped into the sea. Kind of interesting. The tree goes to the sea. You get dropped into the sea if you scandalize or you cause to stumble even one of these little ones. Let's talk about that a, a bit. We know of people, and perhaps we're among the people, that have been battered and bruised with the Bible. Someone has taken the Bible 
and lack of better way of saying it, slapped us up and down, up and down the side of the face with it, saying, you're not doing right. Do you know what I'm talking about? This does happen. And they say, I'm not going to have anything to do with the church or with religion or with God or with Jesus, and they leave. And Jesus is saying, woe to anyone who causes this to happen. I've been to a lot of churches in our conference, a lot of churches around the division. Um, and I sit and I wonder, you know, where are the children? Where are the kids? Not the kids that are here, Pathfinders is today, that's going to be great. But, you know, there's some missing kids. Maybe some of your children. Uh, for some reason, they're not in church. They have chosen to do something different. Something has happened, perhaps, in their life that has scandalized them regarding the gospel, that has caused them to stumble. I don't know what it is. We've heard stories time and time again as to what it possible. Well, thank you very much. Did you like those seeds? Are they big? Okay. And those seeds will produce... We can pass the mustard around. Well, we'll do that later. But for some reason, our kids have left. Perhaps you're one of them. And something happened along the line. You got some encouragement or you got some realization that God needs to be God for us now in a new sort of way. And you've come back. But they have been scandalized. They have left. They have turned another direction. And where are they? And what can we do to make sure that the church and God's kingdom on earth now as it will be in heaven, which welcomes all of God's people, can be a welcoming place for our children? Can we find them again? I don't think we need to go look for the person that, or the persons that may have forced somebody to change and to go a different direction. But I think we have a responsibility to find them and say, come back. We want you. God wants you. You're part of our family. I would love to see churches across our conference, across North America, say, this is a priority. Let us go out and find our kids. Kids that may come back and not meet our basic standards. They may do things and listen to things that we do not approve of, but they are still God's children and should be included in the family of God. Don't you think so? And so Jesus goes on to the next point. If another disciple sins, this is kind of hard for me, says, you must go and tell him. Now, we have a lot of that happening. More probably than I think might be necessary. I've heard of all types of stories of people that have been told what they are doing wrong. And sometimes this is within the 
within the classification of what I think spirituality is, and it may not be the spirituality that is necessary for everyone. But this follows the verse about scandalizing the community. It is bound to happen. Somebody says, Ernie, you need to take a look at what you're doing here. And I do. And I turn to the brother or sister that said that to me and says, I see it. I repent. Jesus says, you must forgive. Notice there's no conditions attached to this. Well, we will forgive you after you uh, contribute $5,000 a month to the church building program. It's none of this. Or you must do certain acts of piety. Or you must come to the uh, uh, feeding project next Sabbath at Santa Ana uh, City Hall. Uh, it's none of that. It says you must forgive. Now here's where it gets problematic for us. If you look at as, as what it says, you must forgive, and if the person sins against you seven times in a day, and after each of those times come back and says, oh, I'm sorry. Again, the word is used, you must forgive. We talked last week a little bit about God's business, the family business. This is a part of what the family of God does. This is God's business. This is how God relates to you. And to me, the only way I can have, I can call God my Father is because God has forgiven me. That because of Jesus Christ, I stand right in the kingdom of God. And this forgiveness that I have received, I must give to those that repent. It's not a maybe. It's not a possibility. It is underscored, I must do it. Now, we come back to our verse that we started with. The verse that says, increase our faith. If you have the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you could move mountains, you could replant a tree in the middle of the ocean. You can understand now, with these two initial stains, why the disciples felt a need to increase their faith. We're going to be stumbling blocks. I need to increase my faith to meet those issues. I'm going to need to forgive and forgive this many times a day for the same thing. How can I do that? Lord, increase our faith. And so we begin to see how these things of what discipleship means that are expressed in Jesus' sayings here calls for faith, trust in Jesus that this can happen. And you discover now that it is not faith to move mountains. It is something far 
greater than moving mountains is enough faith and trust to forgive. And that's the miracle of faith in the story today. Moving a mountain doesn't save a person. Planting a tree in the ocean does not bring somebody back to Jesus Christ. But when I say, I forgive, that is the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle we could, we could have. So find your children. And on behalf of the church, say, welcome home. We forgive. And we can ask for forgiveness by saying, forgive us of what we have done that led you astray. Now the fourth saying that is found here is probably the strangest of the group. Starts in verse 7. This is the parable. There's a lot of parables through this. This is a parable. It's a very brief parable, but it is a parable. And Jesus asked, Who among you would say to your slaves? Right away, the hearer, this is directed to the disciples or others in the group, is pulled into the story. Did you catch that? Who among you would say, to your slave. And I have a problem right away. I don't know if you do. Uh, what's this about Jesus talking about people owning slaves in Scripture? Let me just take a quick aside here. At this particular time, the social economic community was dependent on slaves. Half of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. And the slaves did very credible work. Not just as here plowing the field and tending the sheep. But they were the accountants, the managers. They were the physicians. And Luke, who is writing this, is a physician. And based on what was in place at this particular time in this age, Luke had been a slave. Because physicians were slaves. It would be hard to tell them that today, wouldn't it? But that was the reality of the time. So who among you owned a slave, would have a slave come in from plowing or tending the sheep, would say to him, oh, Thanks for doing that. Come on in. Sit down. Let's have dinner together. No, if you own the slave, what you said was, come in. Uh, I'm ready to eat and drink. Uh, take care of me. And uh, when you get that done, sit down and you can eat. Isn't that the way it is? Jesus said that's the way it is. When you go to some of what Paul has written, he draws on a collection of material called household codes, where it tells how husbands are to behave, how wives are to behave, how children are to behave, and you'll see in that how slaves are to behave. 
This is a part of the household codes that existed in this time that Jesus is referring to. And so the slave comes in from plowing the field, puts on the apron, prepares the food, serves the master, and then sits down to drink. Slaves, Jesus says, do what is commanded. They are not to expect thanksgiving or appreciation for what they do. And then he gives a saving. So also, when you... By, by the way, catch that. Jesus says, so often, when you... Remember how he opened this. Which of you who had slaves would do this? This is one of Luke's reversals. At the first, they were the owners. And all of a sudden, here in verse 10... They are the slaves. Which of you have done all that has been ordered of you say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Uh, worthless. If you look at what was said that a slave did already, it wasn't worthless. Plowing the field is not worthless. Looking after the sheep is not worthless taking care uh, that the master is fed is not worthless. There is value in that service that was given. Uh, this particular word, worthless, is not found in many of the ancient manuscripts. Uh, it has occurred here, um, and it would work. Which of you who are slaves, uh, it could be left out. But there are value to the slaves. But they are doing what they ought to have done. These are the things that are expected of you. Don't expect any more in return. Now let's put this in the context of what we have. Disciples are instructed in this passage as to things that need to be done. Things that are right. There's going to be stumbling, but woe to the one that causes the little one to stumble. Disciples will sin, but you must forgive. You only need little faith to do that. This faith of being able to forgive is a faith of a miracle. This is a business of God's family, of which you and I are part of. When we forgive, we are doing what ought to be done. Do you catch that? When you forgive, you're doing what's expected of you. As a member of God's family, this is what family people do. Come to find ways to forgive. This is God's family business. This is when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It is a kingdom of forgiveness that we ought to do. So taking out of the social situation of the community, Jesus draws on the illustrations of slaves. 
as a means of telling you and me that we need to do what ought to be done. And this we are called to. Oh, friends, it is so hard to forgive, isn't it? We can do it once. It's a struggle. Multiple times, seven times in one day for the same thing. But we are about forgiveness and about holding God's family together and maintaining God's family. And what does it take? Only mustard seed size faith. So all that's needed, which causes a great deal to happen, the greatest of which changes our lives to allow us to forgive. What good news God gives us. Amen.